0: On today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed, episode number 243, John Warner is back, this time to talk about his new book, The Writer's Practice, Building Confidence in Your Nonfiction Writing. Produced by Innovate Learning, Maximizing Human Potential. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie stahoviak and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today, I'm once again joined by John Warner. It's great to have him back. He's Now having his third episode on teaching in higher ed, he originally started back on episode 172 talking about values, interdisciplinary knowledge, and pedagogy, and was on episode 233 pretty recently talking about his book, Why They Can't Write?, And apparently he can write and has written another book, The Writer's Practice, Building Confidence in Your Nonfiction Writing by John Warner. And I'm so happy to have him back joining me today so soon to talk about that new book. John's a writer and teacher of writing with 17 years of experience across four different institutions. He's a contributing blogger at Inside Higher Ed, a weekly columnist for the Chicago Tribune, and is an editor-at-large for McSweeney's Internet Tendency. He currently holds the position of faculty affiliate at College of Charleston and lives in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, with his wife Kathy and their dogs, Oscar and Truman. John, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed.
1: It's a pleasure to be here.
0: I feel like you're an old friend now. It's fun to talk. (laughs) I
1: know. I I need to put like conversation with Bonnie in my calendar on a monthly basis. Yeah, I think I'd be better off for it.
0: Every time I get to talk to you, it's like a new thing, though, in the sense of this time, I want to start out with us talking about how you invite us into this book. And you start by inviting us to write about making a peanut butter sandwich. And I felt very welcome and very at home. And would you talk a bit about why you decided to start with that?
1: Sure. That exercise, I ask people to write a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and there's even space in the book itself, if you have the physical book, to write it in there. That comes from my third grade teacher, Mrs. Goldman, Bobby Goldman, who is retired but lives in Florida and who I've been in touch with since I finished the book, and it's nice to reconnect with her. She gave us that assignment in third grade, and it's the moment in my life where I recognized that I was a writer. The writing had a purpose, writing had an audience, and that writing had stakes when somebody reads your writing, something bad or good could happen. And in this case, Mrs. Goldman had us actually make our sandwiches following our instructions to the letter. So if you can imagine a room full of third graders trying to make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches where they had said things like, take peanut butter, put on bread, And hadn't said how much, or use a knife, or anything like that. The results get pretty messy pretty quickly. (laughs) But it was it was just an amazing lesson in terms of of having this epiphany, like, oh, writing is for somebody. There is an audience, and there is a purpose. And I never forgot it. And so I've used this exercise in just about every writing class I've ever taught. I've used it in many sort of faculty seminars where I've made. You know, tenured professors write instructions for a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I've made corporate people write instructions for peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. It's a kind of universal introduction to, I think, writing as a process and something that requires consideration of audience before you do it. So that's why I wanted to start the book with it.
0: Recently on Twitter, Clint Smith, who's been on the show before, he talked about how much he loves to shop in used bookstores and to buy used books and how those margins and other kinds of annotations are just a story in and of themselves. And I was picturing people after having read your book and gone through all of what you call experiences versus assignments mm-hmm. and what that mm-hmm. might mean. I mean, I, I think that would be really a treasure for someone to get to you know, trust another person enough to share their work through this book. So talk a little bit about the choice to call these experiences versus
1: assignments. Sure. For years, I had stopped using the word essay. I didn't like using essay because students came with so many preconceived notions of what an essay was, how it worked, how it was structured, what it meant they were supposed to do, often tied up with notions of the dreaded five paragraph essay, at least dreaded by me. So I stopped using Essay and I had switched to a framework that I called writing-related problems. That is, there's a a problem we need to solve and we're going to solve it with writing. My editor at Penguin was not wild about putting problem, problem, problem all over the book. So I I thought about some more and realized that while most of the experiences in the book do revolve around problems, some of them really are just experiences through which writing is sort of mechanism or method that we use to encounter the experiences. So I use experience because that's what we're going to do. We're going to experience something that's writing related most of the time for an audience, most of the time with a specific purpose. And when we have an experience, the goal is to, if pardon the cliche, learn from the experience, right? We hear that over and over, we want to learn from the experience. So rather than focusing on the artifact only, you know that which was produced the essay. Let's think about the whole thing. Let's think about what we're going to learn by having a writing experience. And and once I sort of happened upon that, and I right, thought, well, that's even better. Thank you, editor. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank mm-hmm. you, Meg, for convincing me that I should I should think of it again. So yeah, experiences.
0: Why did you decide to write this book?
1: This is a kind of companion to my other book that we talked about previously, Why They Can't Write Curing the Five Prayer FSA and Other Necessities. As I was working on the proposal for that book, I kept thinking about how I really wished there was a book that I would have been given when I started teaching 25 years ago. I guess it was now my first semester of graduate school. How there was, if there was a book that gave not just assignments or what I call experiences, not just curriculum, but also a kind of set of values and philosophies and approaches to writing that I could make use of that would inform my own approach, that I could adopt wholly when I wanted to do that, that I could take an alter when I thought there might be a better approach for my students. I would have really have loved to have had a book like that. And I looked around and saw it didn't exist out in the world now. And so I just got really excited about the thought of trying to bring that book into existence. So it, it kind of happened simultaneously with that other book. At, at one point, I had both of the proposals out in the world and looking for homes at the same time. So it's sort of a fit of madness to think <laughs> that I should sell two books at the same time. But thankfully, knock on wood, it, it worked out and I got to do both of them.
0: The very beginning of the book starts with this Question of who are you as a writer? And I smiled when I saw that part because I tend to sometimes have skipped that part and it doesn't go well. And one quick example of that is that I teach a technology and leadership class. And one of the things that we talk about early in that class is the idea of digital identity. And I invite them to participate in Twitter if they want, although I don't require it. And there's also a component of blogging there. And we talk a lot about taking themselves and putting themselves online and and thinking about what parts of themselves they want to share and some of the rewards and some of the risks involved in doing that. And I, I will never forget when a woman wrote to me and she was so hungry to learn, you could just see it in every word. And she said, I, I want to do this. I want to do this assignment. And you're asking me to to do this, but I don't even know who I am. So how could I figure mm-hmm. out who I am online? And as soon as I saw this part of your book, I thought, Oh, John, I needed you.
1: <laughs> where were you all those years <laughs> ago?
0: Could you talk about starting with this sense of identity? And, and who am I?
1: Yeah, this, again, is born out of my own classes where, again, regardless of sort of the genre of writing, I'm, I'm teaching or Level of student and teaching, I want to know how they see themselves in relation to writing. And as a writer, the framing of that is who are you as a writer is deliberate. It's something, particularly in a first year writing class, many students will simply resist thinking of themselves as writers. And I want to break that down as quickly as possible. I want them believing that the definition of a writer is simply somebody who writes, which is something they're going to do in the class. So it's for the student. They it's, it's a reflective and self-exploration exercise. But it's also for me as the instructor where I get a better sense of how students view their own world of writing and experiences in writing. Which, again, this assignment gave rise to the why they can't write book. Because one of the things I was seeing over the course of quite literally years was students who could only define themselves and their writing in relation to the grades they had received on writing assignments in school. So if they would say, I think I'm a good writer, I get A's in English class. Some people would say, well, I get A's in English class, but I don't think I'm a good writer. And it would begin to distress me that they were defining themselves solely through that metric, what kind of grade a teacher put on the writing. And so in class, then I use it as as a way to open up a discussion with students to see why they hold these attitudes, how I am hoping that their attitudes towards writing will shift over the course of the semester, but just to be fully transparent in the same way the story about your student reveals that, that if we get ahead of ourselves, we may not know where our students are, and we may make assumptions about students that aren't wholly informed by, by what's true. And this is a reminder, who are you as a writer, Is a reminder to me as an instructor to step back and take a little inventory of where students think they are and give them an opportunity to tell me where they think they are. So, yeah, I think in the sequence of my own class, they do the peanut butter instructions in class the first day and the first assignment at the end of that class period is to write a who are you as a writer response. So those are, those are first on the list always.
0: As you were sharing those examples, I, I was feeling a lot of a sense of failure at not doing this. And and it's so easy to make those assumptions, you know, but then I wanted to be a little bit more gentle with myself because I realized just this last Monday in my, my business ethics class that I'm teaching, I have an exercise where I hang up a bunch of posters around the room that's just like eight and a half by 11 signs that'll say things like, I am becoming a person who... And my my sense of ethics shows up in these places and someone I really admired considered to be an ethical person. And so they, they would take stickies, they would talk to a partner, and then they would also take stickies and write down sort of a title that represented the story that they shared with the person. And one of the people is a sticky that they couldn't come up with anybody that they thought of as an ethical person. They couldn't think of an example. And so I realized like, like yes, I need to go set a table that says let's, you know, I can really try the best I can to not make assumptions. And yet so many times we're connecting with people and we're often sometimes not whole ourselves, you know, and so it's, it, this is a dance, yeah. this is a journey, this is not a destination, but I want to be perfect at it right now. And these questions of who we are is really a lot of why so many of us find such significance in teaching.
1: Yeah, it, I've been thinking about this book. A lot, just because it's it's fresh and it's coming out. And while I was writing it, I was thinking, "Oh man, I really wish that I had had thought of this earlier. I had written it years ago." And really, I think the the truth is, I couldn't have because of the how all of this stuff is really a process. You you don't know what you don't know until you understand you didn't know it. Mm-hmm. And you know, this is sort of the sum total of of 20 or so years teaching writing and writing and editing and thinking about the teaching of writing. And I couldn't have written it 10 years ago. I couldn't have, probably couldn't have written it three years ago. So yeah, we can't beat ourselves up too much on this stuff I've been hearing from teachers. It's been really gratifying some of the early reception for the why they can't write book. And I think it's in the teacher's nature to beat themselves up a little bit. When we change something, when we do something differently than we'd be doing it before and recognize that maybe it's better, but this is the nature of the beast. I don't think we can beat ourselves up for having done our best, engaging in a process of reflection that reveals maybe a different path and taking that path that should be celebrated, not sort of, we shouldn't spend too much time self-flagellating over what is and always will be a a process and an imperfect series of steps. We just, we can't avoid that.
0: It's easy to, at least it's it's fairly easy for me to wrap my head around this first half of what we're talking about, but the false assumptions I quickly recognize are also there are thinking that, okay, so you couldn't have written this book 20 years ago, but that that also then means you're done, as in in like you you have it figured out. So, you know, maybe, you know, one day then I'll get to where you are and I'll have it all figured out. It's it's, There's so many people who have just said such poignant things about, you know, we we assume all these people around us just have it figured out and we're the only ones who don't.
1: Yeah, there's already things I would change in the book, not in radical ways, but I've heard from some early readers about assignments they use that are similar, but have like a little tweak that's a little better than what I'm doing. And I'm like, oh, man, I I would love to be able to incorporate that and, and of course, giving credit to to where I got that Mm -hmm. idea. It is purely iterative. There's no finish line. It's the thing that I always liked most about teaching and writing. Not necessarily that you even get better every time, but that each time is another attempt and you're going to learn something from it. You learn from those experiences. But to think that you have it figured out once and for all is simply not true. And of the the best teachers any of us have had, they'll tell you the same thing. Mm-hmm. As soon as you think you're done figuring this out, I think it's probably time to retire.
0: How do we read like writers?
1: Well, so the, the big distinction I make with students is, again, particularly working in a first year writing class where they've been reading for what does it mean and what does it say quite often. I want students examining the piece of writing, understanding essentially how it says what it says. Um, I use a couple of frameworks for this. They talk about the moves that a writer makes, like the, the rhetorical moves. I talk about purpose, often on a paragraph-by-paragraph paragraph basis. We'll look at the first paragraph of something like a review, uh, which is one of my early experiences in the book. Everything sort of framed around a question. So a review, the question is, should I read like a writer by looking at a review? So we see, what does a reviewer do in the first paragraph of a review? Well, they set the subject, they may introduce their own particular stance or bias in terms of They love a particular actor or love the last album by a musician or they don't like romantic comedies or or what have you. And then we look at another paragraph. What is this paragraph doing? How is this working? How are these paragraphs joined? So we're really breaking it down from a message and purpose standpoint. So we understand what it says. We also want to know how it's saying what it's saying. So one of the things I'll have students do is produce a reverse outline to take a finished piece of writing and then try to create an outline based on what they read just to look at the skeleton of it a little bit. And the sooner students start to recognize moves, like, oh, the writer did this, or this is how the writer did a particular move I've seen before, the closer we are to, to putting those moves in our own bag of tricks i'm actually not a golfer but i sometimes think of it in golf analogies like we have your golf bag and when you first start you maybe have like two clubs you have a a three iron and a putter and that's all you can swing over time the goal is to put more clubs in that bag so at the right moment where you need a sand wedge there's a sand wedge so it's a matter of kind of recognizing the moves recognizing the skills and then developing the ability to use those moves in her own own writing and i think those often happen hand in hand and
0: just to illustrate that i know even less about golf than you may <laughs> at, at, at the first moment of you speaking, I thought you said if you need a sandwich, then you could get your sandwich. And I realized, sandwich. no, he said sand wedge, sand you wedge. A, you could use a sandwich,
1: a sandwich while you're golfing also. That's, that's,
0: I think I could use a sandwich a lot more if I was golfing than
1: I could a sandwich. Sure, uh, absolutely.
0: <laughs> so one of the things that we looked at in, earlier in our conversation was this question of who are you? And then in the book, we get to the question of who are our readers. Would you speak about how we should think about profiling our readers?
1: Sure. I'm going to give credit to where I learned this because it's in the acknowledgments of the book, but I like to give credit where it's due. I got this from a woman named Marlene Preston, who was a communication professor at Virginia Tech uh, when I was there and was the coordinator of the course I taught, which was a two-semester course. We had the same students both semesters, first year course, which was fantastic. And it was first year writing, essentially, in the, in the first semester, first year writing with a kind of communication framework. And then the second semester was research and public speaking, which would culminate with a research project where students would both write a paper and give a speech on the same topic. And her framework for thinking about audience is the NAK, N-A-K, their needs, their attitudes, and their knowledge. And this overlays with the rhetorical situation of message audience purpose by sort of breaking out audience and looking at other elements of the rhetorical situation with their needs, attitudes, and their knowledge. So if you think of what an audience needs, it may be, we could be thinking of what are they going to do with your piece of writing? Is it going to be like a set of instructions or a review? Are they going to be making a decision? Are they going to read it once? Are they going to skim it? Are they going to keep going back to it? Are they looking for entertainment? Are they looking for information? Are they looking to be persuaded? All these different things. The attitudes are the attitudes they bring to what they're going to read. How familiar are, are they with it? If we're talking about an argument, it might be the beliefs that they, they bring to the topic we're going to talk about. And knowledge, similarly, is what do they know? What do they know about what you are saying? And that helps us understand better what do they need to know to appreciate what you're saying. The knack, the needs, attitudes, and knowledge is the first thing I I go to when I start thinking about what I'm going to write. And I keep it in my mind the whole time I am writing as the idea reveals itself to me. I keep checking back in with my audience and their needs, attitudes, and knowledge as I go. And it really keeps me on track, not just in terms of message, but structure, sequencing, all that stuff. So it's a, it's a very handy framework to have in mind while you're working.
0: Another theme that you explore is why on earth proofreading is so hard. Would you share about that? I should say proofreading our sure, own work. That, <laughs> Sorry, proofreading our own work. Why is uh, that so hard?
1: Proofreading our own work. Sure, sure. There's a couple things going on. One is a, a well-known sort of psychological phenomenon known as the perceptual set, where our our brains are used to filling in holes, hole, whole, W-H-O-L-E, uh, information based on partial information. So when we think we see enough to figure out the whole, our brain stops kind of seeing. Uh, and I have an illustration in the book of um, some cliches where there's only four or five words in that there's a egregious typo that people, and I do this in class all the time, I put it on the, on the whiteboard or, or in PowerPoint, people do not see them. They're staring at them and do not see the error because of this perceptual set. Related to that is when we write something, we know what we intended to say, and our brain will see the thing we intended to say rather than the thing we actually said. This begets the hominem errors, like there, there, and there. But other things like one of my frequent ones is I'll leave the LY off of words where I need them. So instead of definitely, it'll just be definite. And when I'm just reading through, say on a screen, I won't catch it. So I if I'm really gonna be careful, I read everything aloud to myself slowly and clearly in order to find those things that usually short circuits are brain's tendency to fill in the perceptual set with information that's not actually there it's just sort of a good idea in general and it's almost foolproof as long as you're honest with yourself if you do start to sort of mumble and skim it doesn't help it really is you have to read it as though you're reading it to another person I usually invite the dogs in the room and read it out loud to them and (laughs) and see how they like it and you know we'll sort of cock their heads as though they understand, even though they don't. But it's a reminder to read slowly, read out loud, make sure that I'm processing each and and every word and idea.
0: John, this is such a wonderful, treasured book, and it goes so well with why they can't write. And I'm glad that you went through whatever torturous things you had to go through to get them both out into the world and, and have people be able to access both of them.
1: Uh, thank you. It was a busy year, but it was not a bad way to spend a year.
0: This is the time in the show where we each get to give recommendations, and I've been chuckling ever since I was thinking about what I might recommend because the last time you were on the show, John. You did a little number on me and whoever else decided to listen to your recommendation because you recommended a couple of podcasts that are so good. And it was right over the holidays, I believe. And so I went on this whole journey of the podcast, The Armchair Expert, which you had recommended last time. Uh So I felt like you were both, you know, doing harm to me and also, you know, giving me something (laughs) enjoyable to listen to. (laughs) Oh, it was a, it's a fun a one. Yes, and I thought you described it very aptly. So I was trying to come up with some way to return the quote-unquote favor, and I, I couldn't do it. So I'm going to instead go in a different direction, and that is to recommend that people look at this Twitter thread that I will make available in the show links. This this is a young man who I, I wasn't familiar with until seeing this. There's a lot of tweets that have been going around on Twitter about faculty who have decided to make very public the fact that they don't make accommodations for their students even though that's mm. a letters come out from their Office of Disability Services that says that they need to. And so people are pouncing on them. And and actually in one case, I don't have the link to this particular Twitter exchange, but in one case the the person came back around and said, gosh, I shouldn't have ever put that up there. And it was really unwise of me. And thank you all for educating me. And that's like the best of what we could hope some, a place like Twitter might do. But so this is a thread by Matthew Cortland Esquire. And I'm just going to read it. Uh, actually, maybe I'll first just read his profile really quick, just to give people a sense of who he is, since I didn't know I didn't know him either. So he, his profile on Twitter says, healthcare is a human right, disabled, chronically ill, writer, lawyer, public health nerd. So here's a little bit from Matthew Cortland. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but hopefully enough that people will want to go click on the link and read his whole brilliantly written story. He writes, Someone messages to ask, in what I believe to be good faith, why I go so hard at academics for ableism. It's because the roof leaks. When it's wet outside, water leaks from the bedroom ceiling. You may ask quite reasonably, why don't you do something about it? Because sometimes I have to pay the rent late. I was told by law school administration that I couldn't tell professors I had a disability or that I needed accommodations. I have IBD, which for those who don't know, that stands for irritable bowel mm -hmm. disease. Disease, thank you. My symptoms require, as my accommodations letter put it, unhindered restroom access. The law school tried very hard to violate the ADA. I had to threaten to sue them to be allowed to tell professors I had a reasonable accommodation on the basis of disability. That meant if I needed to go to the restroom, I wasn't going to raise my hand and ask for permission, as some professors insisted. One professor, upon my disclosing chronic illness, said, you won't need something silly like a large font, will you? When I explained Crohn's, he interrogated me about how would he really know if I was faking or if I was really in the bathroom. That was the first interrogation of many. I was cross-examined repeatedly about my accommodations, even though they were from University Disability Services and based upon, oh my gosh, I can't pronounce words today, voluminous medical evidence were they legit no really how was I scamming them that's just a little bit he he goes on it's very well written and if I do come across the other bookmarks that I tried to save and apparently I just discovered before calling John was unsuccessful in saving about a lot of these threads around disability I'll post those in the show notes as well so what a wonderfully written thing
1: Oh, that's great. I mean, I I had not seen that one. I had seen the earlier debate and, you know, it's wrapped up with so many other issues of of academia and, and power and authority and this kind of stuff. But it's just, you know, the notion that a law professor or an English professor or a history professor has some sort of expertise that can determine whether or not a student is faking a disability for whatever reason they might want to do this is just ludicrous. And the people who believe that their authority extends to that, I think, really need to check themselves. And that's a great illustration as to why. We've talked about this previously, that there's no reason not to trust students in their own experience of the world and to sort of impose that authority on them it does not do them any favors. It doesn't, it doesn't do the professor any favors either. Why do you want to put yourself in the position of being a sheriff or jailer over your student? I don't know how that helps
0: anybody the other thing i liked about sharing this with you on this episode john is i mean what a masterful first entry someone messages him to ask you know why why he goes so hard at people who do this it's because the roof leaks and our brains just instantly what does he mean what is this roof what is he talking about i didn't know who he was and i'm captivated by this roof and why it leaks that's
1: fantastic
0: john what do you have to recommend for us today
1: so I'm gonna do three books because I can't resist, but I'll try to do them quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh one I can do quickly because so many people have been talking about it and I wrote a review of it in the Chicago Tribune. But I'll just keep saying it is thick and other essays by Tressie McMillan Cottom. She's a superstar. The book is amazing. Where if if people are when they hear words like intersectional scholarship or intersectionalism and they wonder what that is, read uh, Professor Cotton's book and you'll see what that means and all that really means is you look at the world and you think of different issues very deeply and you combine issues with other issues until you reveal something that other people haven't seen before and that reveal is a literal revelation and she has multiple revelations in every single essay in this book and If she is not already, and I think she's getting there, she will be a major national voice about anything she wants to. She's amazing. Mm -hmm. The other book is one I also wrote about for Inside Higher Ed called Dreyer's English, An Utterly Correct Guide to Clarity and Style by Benjamin Dreyer, who is the copy chief for Random House, so the the head, head copy editor and copy chief for this major publisher. Has worked there for many years, and as I wrote an inside higher ed, many years ago, I gave up using a style guide in my writing classes because I never found one that fit with the way I think about writing. They're far too prescriptive. They're too rule-based. They don't really help students think about their writing. Dryer's English is the first style guide I've seen in decades that I would include in my class, not only would, but will, so I recommend it for that. And finally, a book called On Writing by Roger Sale. This book is long out of print. It was published in nineteen seventy. I was introduced to it at the relatively recent Modern Language Association Convention at a panel on the forgotten texts of rhetoric and composition. And one of the speakers, John Schilb from Indiana University, talked about on writing, and as he was talking about it and describing it, I was just getting more and more excited. Roger Sale is writing many of the same critiques that I write of, of how we teach writing and the systems surrounding the teaching of writing in 1970 that I have in my book from 2018, 2019. So it was simultaneously heartening that I'm not alone. Other people think the same way as me and a little bit disconcerting in that this book was published the year I was born. And we're still having these discussions. It's a really interesting way of thinking about writing. He's got some very specific analysis of student writing that is great. And if you can get your hands on a used copy, I recommend it, On Writing by Roger Sale. That's it. Mm. Three books.
0: I'm thinking that I I probably won't put the Amazon link to On Writing because there's a paperback copy you could get your hands on for (laughs) $499.96.
1: (laughs) Yeah, the the better route for used books of that kind, of the old kind, I find is ABE Books. I don't know if it's ABE or Abe Books. Uh, That's sort of my go-to for older used books. You know, it's just a clearinghouse for all the little used bookshops in America, and and it's a better bet than Amazon for these things. I think I got mine for $7, and it's in in decent shape. It's got all the pages. It's a little yellowed, but it, it holds together.
0: Yeah. And circling back to the tweet I mentioned from Clint Smith earlier in our conversation about sometimes even having the used book has some neat treasures that you wouldn't have gotten if it was a new
1: one. So. Yeah, absolutely. Or even uh, my copy of On Writing it had the invoice from Random House to the bookseller, mm. which is a sort of very old school uh, carbon copy. And it actually reminded me a lot of uh, my mom owned her own bookstore where I grew up. It reminded me of her bookstore because I used to see those things all over the place back in the day. So, it was a, yeah, it's, it's the, you never know what little treasure you're going to find in a used book.
0: Yeah, I love it. Well, John, it's been so good having this conversation. And, and it's fun that the last one wasn't that long ago either. So thanks for coming back on the show. And I'm looking forward to the next time we get a chance to talk.
1: Yeah, it's always fun. Anytime you want to invite me, I'm here.
0: <laughs> Thank you. The book is called The Writer's Practice Building Confidence in Your Nonfiction Writing by John Warner. And I was so grateful to get to have this conversation with him today, again, so soon, since our conversation about his last book, Why They Can't Write, Killing the Five Paragraph Essay and Other Necessities, also by John Warner. And I'm thankful to all of you for listening and getting to hear from so many of you on Twitter. And in other spaces, just about the kind of impact that people like John Warner are having on you, on your work, on your teaching, on your lives. And thanks for sharing those moments with me. And if you would like to connect on Twitter, I'm at B-O-N-N-I with no E, 208. And there also is a Vibrant Teaching in Higher Ed account. It's T-I, Higher Ed. And you can find us both on Twitter. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next time.